First Peter chapter two, uh, verses eighteen to twenty-five is the passage that's read today. We're going to get to the first three verses or so today, but I just want to introduce this by saying that becoming a Christian changes everything, doesn't it? Becoming a Christian doesn't just result in a slight change of behavior. It doesn't result in a change of friends. It just doesn't give us something to do on Sundays. It does all these things, but it literally it changes everything. It changes our desires, our dreams, our judgment of morality, our evaluation of earthly things, our hope for the future, our, our judgment on how present circumstances affect our lives. And so all of these things and more changes how we process the world around us when we become believers. And I think it's hard to find a more radical example of how becoming a Christian changes your life more than in this passage. Remember the context. If you look at verse number 9, 1 Peter 2, 9, it says it gives us our reason for existence. What is our reason for being here? The reason we're here is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, right? Isn't that our purpose? Verse number 11, look at what he says. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which war against your soul. And so verses 9 and 11 give the same goal for Christians. We are to live in a way that shows God. That's it. We are to live in a way that shows God in all His glory. But a Christianity that makes no visible difference in the way we act, cannot show God, right? Um, we have teenagers here. I love teens. I've said that so many times. Teenagers, you are headed off to college. You're headed off to careers, whatever. When you get out of school, Christ makes a difference in your life. Christ makes a difference in how you plan your life. If you're a parent of young children, Christ makes a difference in how you raise your children. And Christ makes a difference in how we work and how we respond to things at work. And Peter, here in this passage, gives us uh, some examples of what true Christianity looks like in a hostile world of his day. Last week, he, we saw how he, he said that uh, Christians shows how to relate to the state. And let me say something about last week's message. I got some feedback. It was wonderful feedback from the message, and and helpful suggestions. And what I did last week, I had a goal in mind. My goal was to stay in the strict confines of the passage as best I could. So therefore, I limited such things as the role of government to what the passage said. I limited how we are to conduct ourselves in relation to government to the passage itself. What I didn't, what I left out is stuff that you ought to realize that I wasn't preaching against. And that was, should we vote? By all means, we should vote, right? If we have a chance, should we participate in government? By all means. But what I was pointing out is that uh, we need to make sure that we keep our priorities right and realize that government is submissive to God, whether they know it or not. That's last week, how we relate to state. This week, We're going to take up another tough situation, and that is if you are a slave with an unbelieving master or even a crooked or abusive master, how are you to relate to this person? 
Well, um, what would Christianity look like in that situation? Well, Peter tells us, and, and let's just do an overview. In verse number eight, 18, servants are to be subject, subject with fear to their masters, right? That's what it says. Verse number 19, God is bestowing favor upon you when you suffer unjustly and do what? Remember God. Uh, verse number nine. Uh, verse number twenty. Uh, it is a good work when you patiently endure suffering. Verse number twenty-one. The one, and this is the one that tops them all. Your call to salvation is a call to suffer. Now, how many really thought about that when they got saved? How, that's a great evangelistic appeal, appeal, isn't it? Hey, become like Christ so you can suffer. And and clearly, Peter says that that is literally our call, a call to suffer. So when you when you think about the countercultural set of teachings, I don't think it gets much more countercultural than this. Who would want to join a group of people whose purpose is to suffer? Sign me up. Right. Who likes to suffer? No one wakes up in the morning saying, boy, I'm sure I real I suffer today. I, I hope my family turns on me because I'm a Christian. Anybody wake up saying that today? We have a counseling ministry for anybody that did. <laughs> I can't wait for the next shoe to drop at church or at work. At work, at church too. It might after my Sunday school lesson today. I'm not sure. But uh, if there are pitchforks out back, I anyway. Nobody wants to endure suffering. You know, nobody wakes up and says, man, I hope I get a bad report at that doctor's office today. Nobody does. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody likes to suffer. I don't like to suffer. You don't like to suffer. And yet, the Bible is very clear that we're called to suffer. And that that begs the question, what kind of a God do we serve that appoints suffering for His children? Have you ever thought about that? Do you make your children suffer? Yeah, you do. When I was a kid, we walked to school uphill both ways in the snow. Your, your kids suffer through that one. But in, in all, all honesty, what kind of a God calls his children to suffer? We're going to answer that question a little bit today and a lot more next week. This material that I'm going to give you now comes from a book entitled Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. It's, it's a very good book. And I just want to talk about suffering for just a minute. Why, why does God appoint suffering to his children? I think this is material is gold and I think you'll uh, like it. Number one, appoint suffering to his children because suffering deepens faith and holiness. Hebrews 5.8 says he disciplines us for our own, our good, that we may share in His holiness. Uh, that's Hebrews 12.10, I'm sorry. Hebrews 5.8 says Jesus um, experienced the same thing. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. These verses mean that the process that uh, through which Jesus demonstrated deeper and deeper obedience was a prop, uh, the process of suffering. Jesus didn't have to suffer to learn obedience. That's not what it's saying. Let me say it one more time. What it's saying is, you, it proved how deep his obedience is by him suffering. Understand what, it, what it's saying? Jesus suffered to prove how deep his obedience was to the Father. So the first purpose of suffering 
is to wean us from the world and set our hope fully on God. Right? Number two, suffering makes your cup increase. 2 Corinthians chapter number five or four, verses 17 and 18 say, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All right, literally everything that we can see, chairs, platform, your nice new car out there, your house, Everything, your bank account, it's all going to disappear one day. And the only thing that's going to remain is the things that we have to acquire by faith in God. Wrap your mind around that one. And because of that, this verse is saying that in heaven, our experience of glory will more or less depend upon the affliction that we endure by faith. Isn't that what it says? That momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Now let me show you something that Jesus said. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, in verses 11 and 12. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On whose account? On His account, because you're a Christian. And then He says what? For your reward is great. So there is definitely a correlation between the amount of glory of God that you can comprehend, the amount of glory that you're going to experience in heaven, and the amount of suffering that you endure keeping your eyes on Him. Now, if you think about that truth for just a minute, Well, I'll, I'm not going to say that. Um, so one, one of the aims of God in suffering of saints is to enlarge capacity to enjoy His glory both here and the age to come. Bottom line, enjoy His glory. Number three, suffering fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Sufferings, the sufferings of Christ's messengers ministers to those they are trying to reach with the gospel. History is replete with these sorts of things. That's Paul's message in 2 Corinthians 1, 5 and 6. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. Two, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the sufferings that we suffer. It is for your comfort and salvation that the Apostle Paul was suffering. So our suffering as believers can be a testimony that helps in bringing about the salvation of others. So that's, that's, that's something to really think about. Now, uh, most of the examples that we would have in Christian history would be missionaries that suffer at the hands of other people. I'm thinking of the five uh, with the Alka Indians. Everybody's familiar with that story, right? Jim Elliott and, and all those guys. But, um, but the suffering brings about comfort and salvation to those that Christ's messengers are ministering to. Next one, suffering enforces missionary command to go. Acts 8.1, And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
So the affliction that causes you to flee is a missionary endeavor. We see that so clearly in in the um, the persecution of the church at Jerusalem. But in Paul's ministry, what what was Paul's pattern, by the way? Paul's pattern is he comes in, he preaches to the Jews in the synagogue in whatever city he's in. After a couple of weeks, they reject it. He goes and speaks to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles begin trusting Christ as their Savior, they start getting rid of their gods, and that causes the rest of the community to go in an uproar. Paul gets beaten and thrown in jail or gets kicked out of the city. And what does he do? He shakes the dust off and he moves on to the next city. Is that a missionary endeavor? Because if things went really well, he would probably just stay in that one city. But, but that's what God does. And so for us, what does that mean when we think about this aspect of suffering? What it, what it means is that we should not judge apparent setbacks and defeats of the church as being something negative. If you see things with the eyes of God, who is the master strategist, you'll see that in every setback, God is repositioning the troops for a greater advance and a greater display of his wisdom and power. It's not a setback. There are no setbacks with God. Never has been, never will be. The lesson here is not, is just, is not just that God is sovereign and turns setbacks into triumphs. The lesson for us as believers, listen to this, because I'm going to get right where you live. You ready? I'm not sure you're ready for this. Seriously. Comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity, they do not produce personnel, energy, and investment of time and money for ministry. They don't. What they do produce, though, is the exact opposite. They produce weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, and preoccupation with security and preoccupation with worldly things. And that is the church in America. The church that once sent missionaries all over the world is not sending as many now. And there's a direct correlation between the amount of affluence and the lessening of the gospel ministry. And there's a correlation between the persecution of other countries, you know, Christians in other countries, and their missionary endeavor. That's how God works. Now, I don't know about you. I like ease and prosperity and leisure and all those things, don't you? I do. So what do we do about that? I don't want to just say, hey, you, you bunch of rich people out there, you shouldn't act like that. That's, that's not my intention. My intention is for you to look at your life and, and me. I did this week. How am I allowing leisure and, and all these things negatively affect my gospel witness? Right? And it's an encouragement then for us to look and then what? Do better because when we do better, we glorify Christ and he rewards us. It's a great system uh, that, that God has set up. Why should we work for reward? Because Jesus said that we should work for reward, right? Let me give you one more. Suffering makes Christ more powerful and heaven more desirable. When Paul was suffering, uh, the thorn in his flesh, you remember that? God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what God said to Paul. Do you know how Paul responded? He said this, 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content in with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen? Oh, man. Would to God that He takes Providence Bible Church and sends us out with a single-minded focus on God and His glory and on heaven and all its glory. He's telling everybody about it and witnessing for Him and just throwing ourselves into that life. Wouldn't it be great? It would be great. So, in other words, what Paul's saying here is that Christ's power was Paul's only power when his sufferings brought him to the end of his resources and cast him wholly upon Jesus. How many here... You might be sitting here thinking, I don't know how I can go on. My life, there's suffering. My life, there's setbacks. My life, there's this, that, or the other thing. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to go on. What did Paul say? When I'm at the end of my rope, Christ is the only power I can rely upon. And that's where we turn. We turn to Jesus Christ. Well, there's so much more I could say about suffering. uh, But this is sufficient for the passage at hand. You may be here suffering at the hands of a Christ-rejecting family or spouse or parent. You might be struggling because your witness is being rejected. And it could be a number of things. It could be a work. You, you have a good testimony. You're trying to maintain a testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's being rejected. As a matter of fact, it's more than being rejected. You are being uh, put back. You're being put down. You're being persecuted a little bit of work because you stand for goodness and righteousness. Well, Peter's message is for you today, then. Let's look at what he says in this passage. Verse number 18. What are we to do when these sort of things happen? Number one, be subject even when suffering under crooked employers. Crooked employers. Verse number 18. Let's look at this verse. I'm going to unpack it a little bit. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. So, good and gentle is being laid over against unjust. English versions of the Bible, they sanitize the word servants here. Almost every single English version says servants. The word is not servants. It's the word orchites, which means domestic slave. A household slave. Someone with no rights. Someone who was considered subhuman. The fact that Peter even addresses this is counterculture. In Roman society, a slave was not a person. Therefore, you did not need to address them as a person. That's how they viewed it. And that Peter said, slaves, tells us that Christianity was countercultural. That he was addressing them as people, as children of God. And Peter's not, by the way, condoning slavery. Don't ever think that the Bible condones slavery. He is simply addressing the fact that some Christians were slaves. And although many slaves lived miserable, uh, particularly those who served in mines and other sorts of things in the bathhouses and those areas, other slaves served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and they could even own other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than the master. But all of them could endure brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners because they weren't people. They were just property. And here's Peter. 
He's lifting them up by, call, by addressing them with all the other people saying, here, slaves, um, what do you do? You be subject. And what Christianity doesn't do, let me just talk about slavery for just a minute, okay? Uh, Christianity, what it does not do is free slaves. Christianity doesn't give equal social rights to slaves. Christianity doesn't guarantee that you no longer have to submit to any earthly employer or leader. It's just not so. It doesn't upset the social order. Jesus didn't propound equal rights. He didn't upset the social order. Peter didn't either. Paul didn't either. John didn't. None of the other New Testament writers did. What they did, please listen very carefully, what they did is they affirmed that with great fear of God... And with great respect, you are to be submissive to your masters. Whether they're good and gentle or whether they're unreasonable, you submit. The Christian's conduct is the same in either case. Your submission will make you a testimony. That's countercultural, isn't it? Um, Now, listen very carefully what what God is doing here. It is more important to God that you maintain a faithful Christian testimony, then you get what you think you have coming in this life. More important to God. And if you can obey Him in the hard times, what you get in the next life far outstrips any reward you could get here. Any social status you could get here. It's more important that you provide a platform for the integrity of Christianity than to have equal rights. It's more important for you to uphold the credibility of the church than it is for you to get a raise. It's, it's more important for you to show that you submit to God in everything and you give your life to His control than you protest your employer by a sit-in or a walkout or a strike. Your Christian conduct is what matters to God because the only reason you're in this world is in order for God to use you to reach somebody else for Jesus Christ. Right? That's why we're here. It's not significant that you get what you think you're, you, you're due in the human realm. Now that, I know I'm being really confrontational here. But it, it flies in the face of everything we learn in our, our society. We need to make sure that we have a biblical viewpoint. Is slavery reprehensible? It is. It is reprehensible. And I, I don't believe that you can have a Christian worldview and condone slavery. But let's go back to our passage. That's enough on slavery. In what manner are they to subject themselves to their masters? Well, they're to do it fearfully. If you look at verse number 18, it says you are to be subject to them with what? Respect. Many of the verses say respect. The word is phobos. The word is phobos from where we get the word phobia. What's your phobia? Arachnophobia? What's the term for people that are scared of confined spaces? Claustrophobia. There you go. Anybody claustrophobic? Yeah. I'm not claustrophobic, but I came close in the fire department when we had to crawl through when we did our confined space training. Uh, that that just doesn't appeal to me, right? Uh, what are some of the other? Well, we won't go into phobias, but But what are, what, are, what are slaves to do? What are servants to do? They are to fearfully submit. And who are they to fear? That's the, that's the $20,000 question. 
They are to fear God. First Peter, now this is really fascinating. If you study First Peter, I'll give you the verses. Every time believers are to fear in First Peter, it's fearing God. Not human beings. Uh, there's five times he says that. I thought I wrote the verses in the sermon. I didn't. So if you want them, I'll give them to you later on. But uh, Peter spoke against fearing human beings two times. One of them, in 1 Peter 3.14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, talking about human beings, nor be troubled. The reason that, that we, the, the recipients that Peter is writing to are to fear slave owners and submit to slave owners is because of their relationship to God. Peter doesn't make conditions uh, whether the master are good or bad, he says, submit to every master, even the crooked ones. See that word unjust? The, not to only the good and gentle, but to the unjust. That word is scolios. Where we get our word scoliosis, crooked. They are to submit to crooked masters. Now this probably has more to do with a lot of us than anything else. Submit to your crooked boss. You like to submit to a crooked boss? I want to talk to the teenagers specifically real quick. Teens. If you're out car buying and, the, and you're car shopping and the guy that comes up to you, his first name is Honest, run. This is Honest Pod. Honest Pod was an infamous car dealer in my hometown, Decatur, Illinois. Honest Pod was not Honest. Um, he, one time, um, the young man came to his car dealership. Of course, you see it's a, it's a beautiful installation there. Came to his car dealership, beautiful car on the lot. And the guy said, hey, can I, t-? he's a teenager. He said, can I test drive it? I think he's 18 or 19. Honest Pod said, nah, you don't need to test drive it. It, it runs perfectly. It's a beautiful car. And, uh, the guy said, okay. And they went in and signed the papers. He handed him the keys. He went out. The car had no engine. Now, Honest Pod went to jail for that for a little while. The kid got his money back. But Honest Pod still stayed in business after that. Figure that one out. What I'm trying to tell you is you still need to submit if your boss is Honest Pod you still need to submit to the honest pods of this world. Unless they ask you to do something that is against God's Word. Otherwise, if honest pod's your boss and he tells you to do something, you have no right to look at him and say, well, you're, you're dishonest, you're crooked, I don't have to do what you say. That's not true at all. We're supposed to do it. Why? Because we're here as examples of Jesus Christ to proclaim His glories and, and and let God take care of that. Well, let me give you a second reason. This is great. This is really good. Why? How should we act in the face of this sort of thing? We need to remember that we'll be subject because you will be rewarded. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says this, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And you know what's so exciting about these verses? It's They're bracketed by the, the phrase, gracious thing. Gracious thing at the beginning, gracious thing at the end. Those are the brackets. That word gracious thing is, is a really fascinating uh, uh, little thing. What it is talking about is the grace of God that's upon our lives. And I'll, and I'll unpack that more in just a little bit. But remember, those are the brackets. And so the word translated a gracious thing is the word charis. And what it seems to be saying in verse number 19, what is this gracious thing, which is a general principle, verse number 19, general principle, Verse number 20 is the unpacking of it. In verse number 20, he says that those who are punished while doing wrong have no reason to congratulate themselves. They are simply getting what they deserve. On the other hand, those who suffer for doing good and endure the mistreatment will receive a reward from God. Now, this, this word gracious thing is, is the word that is talking about grace. And some some of the uh, different versions have different words for it. But the grace that you're receiving is a reward. You receive a reward. Isn't that awesome to think that we can get a reward from God? He views us with favor. He, He deals with us favorably when we have an unjust boss, a crooked boss, somebody who doesn't appreciate what we're doing, and we look past his unfairness and we look to God and say, God, in all things, I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to work to the best of my ability. I'm going to submit to this employer because you are my God and I love you, God. And God is in heaven and he's looking at this and he's looking upon you with favor and he's rewarding you for that. Isn't that a great thing? It is. It's a tremendous thing. It's a gracious thing, the Bible says, that we have. So here's a guy in the workplace. He's a slave. And in the Roman world, he might be getting whipped unjustly. He might be getting deprived of his food unjustly. He might be working long hours beyond what is reasonable unjustly. He might be punished in any number of ways unjustly. But for the sake of conscience of God, he endures all of these sorrows. God is thankful. God is gracious. God is rewarding. God is looking on him with favor. That's what pleases God. What, let me ask, does the Bible say what pleases God is when you protest? Protest the unjust work conditions? Does it say it pleases God when you strike? Does it say it pleases God when you picket? When you walk out? No. What gives God a disposition of favor towards you with Him is when you bear up under those sorrows when they come to you unjustly. That pleases God. Painful, unjust beatings were being endured, no doubt, by some of the people that Peter was writing to. They were being beaten as slaves by those who were taking advantage of them. And in this very practical understanding of it, that it was far worse than anything we can imagine, they didn't have freedom. They couldn't change jobs, could they? I've never heard of a, a slave being able to change slave owners. They had no labor unions. They had no kind of recourse. They had no employee counselors. There was no union, no Better Business Bureau, any of that. There were no civil lawsuits that they could bring against their employers. And they just had to take it. And Peter says, it is a gracious thing if when you take it, you don't complain. 
You don't moan. You don't pick it. But instead, you remember who God is and you serve God and you obey because of who God is. What a wonderful thought that is. God delights in behavior that, that reflects an utter reliance on His grace. When it supports, uh, when the supports of our world are knocked out, whatever it is, what, whatever is coming your way, God loves it when we look to Him. And He rewards us greatly. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, great is your reward in heaven. Do you want to be rewarded? Everybody wants to be rewarded. That's why we give out participation trophies. By the way, God doesn't give those out. What does God do? God rewards and rewards greatly. And His rewards and His rewards are unfading. And His rewards are, are, are everlasting. What a wonderful idea this is. And this motivates us to be subject to our bosses. There are endless ways that you might be suffering for doing good today. Peter, Just because Peter talks about slaves doesn't mean that we have to limit it to our employment situation. You, you, you could be suffering from family. Maybe you became a believer and they're unbelievers and now your life is out of sync with their life and they look at you and they say, what is wrong with you? You used to be so much fun. Right? I don't like what this Christian thing did to you. Maybe your Christianity rubs up against their religious beliefs and they disinherit you or whatever else. Maybe, and I've seen this so many times, maybe you're helping a family member out, elderly parent, and they're not thankful. They're combative. And they're blaming you. And you're thinking to yourself, you have no idea what I sacrificed to help you out. And here you are acting like this towards me. As long as you're doing it to the Lord. You're doing it with Him in mind. Maybe people are saying things about you at work. Maybe you've been passed over for promotion because you won't be dishonest. Maybe the neighbors won't talk to you because you're a believer. And you're on the wrong side of history. All I can say is this. Be mindful of God. Trust Him. He says that He will reward this. He is, by your suffering, enlarging your capacity. Listen, He's enlarging your capacity for joy. He's enlarging your capacity for glory in this life and in the life to come. This life, you have joy when you follow Him. In that life, in the in eternal life, you're going to have everlasting joy to a degree that you can't even imagine. When you suffer for Christ, we're going to see this next week. When you suffer because you're in Christ, you're going to see Him and His glory better now. But it's no comparison to the glory that you're going to see when you get to heaven. And this is what God is doing for you. When you do right in the face of opposition, when you do right when people are telling you don't, when you do right and nobody appreciates it, keep your eyes on God. Remember the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
You see, we serve a God who appoints suffering to His children because He wants to reward them. Now, we understand that completely, don't we? I, there was an article just this last week about, I think it's, a, is it the Army that's going to increase their standards of physical fitness? Army Reserve or something like that. They have a picture of a guy in an Army uniform, and, and he is definitely not going to meet any kind of fitness standard. Now, why would you? Why does the Army and the Marines and the Navy and the Air Force, why do they make their people suffer in boot camp? Is it because they're meanies? <laughs> Thanks, Cameron. So, answers no. They do it because there's a definite reason for it. So we understand that, don't we? We just don't think of that as suffering. Uh, somebody handed me today. Uh, Bill handed me today the the, the confluence grid between Jim the, the, these uh, softwares they on your phone they track where you're going. And the number of gym visits and the number of fast food visits from January. And what day of the year is it where, the, where people who were going to the gym now visit fast food places more than they go to the gym? If you want to know, it's February 9th. I've got it right here in my pocket if you want to see it. So, from the USA Today. But why do you make yourself suffer at the beginning of the year and say, I'm going to get physically fit and I'm going to quit eating all that sweet stuff and fattening stuff? Why do you make yourself suffer? Because you have a goal. I want to lose weight. I want to get in better shape. I want to have better health or whatever it is. So we understand it completely. But then when we get to Christianity, we think to ourselves, I don't want to suffer. And yet, it's, it perfectly, it's perfectly logical why it happens. And it's for a great one. It's for Jesus and His glory. And it's for your reward. So, dear believer, I don't know where you are. You could be a young mother today. And you just have so much coming and going. You're thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to hold up under this. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Him as glory. Those little kids, those little children, those precious children that you're... Uh, nursing and weaning and, and changing diapers and all the things that you do. You do it for the glory of God. You do it because you want your child to turn out like Jesus Christ and to get rewarded for it. Isn't that awesome? Huh. I could go on and on, but you get the point, right? We serve a great Savior. So look to God in your suffering. Thank you, Lord, for what we see today from Peter. We, we understand that you're a gracious God, and I don't like suffering. Nobody likes suffering. But you appoint it to us because it glorifies you and because we get rewarded for it in eternity in heaven and because other people are brought to Christ because of it. So, Lord, I'm not going to pray that we endure, that we, that you bring on suffering, but why I'm going to pray is that when we are enduring suffering, that we will keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.